0: Hey, I'm Danny Mazer, and you are listening to the Soul Stories podcast, an extension of Soul Stories. At Soul Stories, we create spaces for risk-taking, vulnerability, and critical thought. On this season of the podcast, we speak to change makers about their personal journeys and how they are making an impact in their communities. Chris is a lifelong community activist, organizer, and family man. Growing up, Chris navigated multiple identities, both within his family and his community. This helped him develop an extraordinary understanding of how to build bridges between cultures. He is dedicated to his community, Montbello, an ethnically diverse neighborhood on the northeast side of Denver that has gone through many changes in the last couple of decades. Chris is not afraid of change, discomfort, and difficult conversations, similar to the one we had here. I truly believe that his solutions can make this world more inclusive, understanding, and connected. Welcome to the show, Chris.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: The first question we ask all our guests is, uh, what are you creating
1: in the world? My philosophy in life is to leave the community where I live a better place than where, when I moved here. What's that look like for you right now? For me right now would be diversity. Okay. Uh, continued diversity, safe environment, mm. uh, for, uh, especially for my grandchildren. Uh, and the children of uh, that are coming up, and a a safe harbor, a place where they can live, work and uh, enjoy uh, the community they're in
0: so. Myself, I'm privileged to know some background information on you. Curious if you could explain, uh, you know, the area you live in, Montbello, and what, what you're doing for Montbello.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I live in Montbello for over a 40 year resident of Montbello, the community, uh, and uh, by choice.
0: And, <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, and I always say that because that's important for folks to know. A lot of my friends have moved out of Montbello, moved to other communities, and we've chosen to continue to live there. Uh, I love it. I love the open space. Uh, I love the diversity. Uh, And matter of fact, I love our homes. Our homes are good-sized homes and uh, they're beautiful and sound and a big backyard. Uh, But I think with the biggest piece of the, the Montbello community that I'm striving and working hard for today is to continue the diversity. We have faced changes over the last 40 years and they've been great changes. I'm not complaining about them, but they've always been diverse and to trying to keep that diversity in our community. And diversity is not just ethnicity and races, it's economic levels. Mm. Uh, and it's also the demographics of having a good mixture of adults, uh, grandparents, and young children and young families.
0: What is happening in the
1: community that that, that that's changing? It, it just like a lot of places in Denver, I think that the affordability of the homes in Montbello are the best. And so sometimes that starts to change the community, the diversity. Uh, When I moved there 40 years ago, it was a good mixture of Anglo-African-American families, very few uh, hispanic Latino families in Montbello, uh, a lot of younger families and retired military families which was an interesting the, mix. When you first moved. moved into Montbello. Oh, interesting. Uh, a lot of the families from Fitzsimmons and Lowry Air Force Base, okay. uh, military folks bought their first homes in Montbello and raised their families there. And so then the second generation began to buy their family, uh, buy homes and, and live there as well. So watch that transition over the last 40 years, probably I would say probably the last 15 years or so a lot more Latinos a lot more uh, spanish-speaking families moving into the community a lot of the Anglo families moved out earlier and then many of the African- American families moved either to Green Valley Ranch or Southeast Aurora and many times looking for more modern newer homes another opportunity to that American dream that they're we're always searching for uh, to raise their families but I just felt like Montbello is the best environment and it doesn't get any better than that with the diversity. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough that my children still have roots in Montbello and my grandchildren are being raised there too.
0: Hmm. So is Montbello facing gentrification or no?
1: It will. It will. It it will. It's not currently Uh, though. I, I, you know, it, it, it depends on what you look at gentrification. I think folks say gentrification is more when, uh, I think it was more affluent people move into communities, not so much race, ethnicity, folks. Yeah. it's Uh, And so I think that changes the demographics of the community. And so as our homes are more affordable, our homes are large homes and large yards, I think we will face it and we will see it. Uh, So my goal is to get working in our community today and how do we keep folks in our community uh, so they, we keep that diversity. How do we keep folks in their homes instead of taking that uh, big check uh, to sell their home and making sure if they want to sell their home because it, there are times in your life when it's time to sell your home. And, and that's great because that's what it's all about. But do you have a plan of where you're going to go? Do you have a plan for if you have medical needs and, and those types of things where you're going to get those? And do you even know where you're going to go before you accept that check? Mm. And so it's an education process that we need to do in our community. And one of the things I'm working on right now, Big, is trying to make sure we have enough affordable housing in our community. So we're working on a big project to bring some additional affordable housing to the community so folks that have to make a decision that leave a place because the rents have gone too high uh, that we can provide a solution for them. Are there
0: developers moving into... Montbello that see this as an opportunity to start buying homes and
1: upselling them? So that's an interesting thing. Montbello is a little unique in most of the city. The answer, short answer to your question is a yes. However, that happened during the recession that we had and when the home values in the metropolitan area went down, there were a lot of predator loan, uh, loan folks that convinced a lot of Montbello residents, young Montbello residents, first time home buyers, into getting these uh, mortgages that with adjustable rates. And so as the interest rates went up, their mortgages went up and they couldn't afford it. So they sold their homes dirt cheap. And they sold it to a lot of individuals who bought several homes, knowing that someday the market would come back and they rented out those homes. So we have a high rental market in Montbello. Interesting. And so those folks are reaping the benefits of having bought those homes. I think some of them still are doing the rental. But I do think that down the road that they will sell because the prices will come up a lot. Interesting. And how
0: did you see that impact your community?
1: Well, the impact of your community is always the funny thing. I think you live in any community. If you go to the grocery stores, utilize grocery stores or the schools, uh, you know your community is changing. Mm. Those are the telltale signs. For grocery stores, what's on the shelves? As new people move into your community, uh, they start asking for certain things to happen, to be on the shelves at the grocery stores. And when they start showing up, You know, there's a change coming in your community. And so when we had the big uh, sway of Latinos moving in and renting homes and buying homes, the grocery stores start carrying more ethnic foods uh, (laughs) towards the South American style, which is no objection to me. I mean, I was going to say that sounds great, but uh, (laughs) it does provide a greater variety. We have a large Asian population, so you'll see a lot of Asian foods on our grocery store shops. And and then grocery stores is another whole issue, as a sorry issue as well for our community. But the other thing is school, school school-age children. Uh, When my children were in high school, at Montbello High School, they were graduates. It was predominantly African-American high school. And uh, my, my children thrived at that school and, and excelled, as many. We had some better scholars come out of that high school for folks who think that that was not a very quality, high educational institution. But what I saw happening in the elementary level at that time was a lot of Latino kids and a lot of Spanish-speaking kids. And so I started working with the administration at the high school saying, you know the change is coming. And you have to prepare for it and you have to be ready and i really firm believer you should have staff on your uh at the high schools or any school that reflect the student body represent and yeah absolutely uh so the kids have folks there that know what they they see themselves in a future teacher or administrator or whatever position, even if it's the administrative assistant at the school, but they see themselves in that building, I think it makes it much easier for kids to adapt in newer facilities, and it makes it easier and a much better uh, educational opportunity for them as well. And uh, so we started preparing the high school for that back in the early 90s, mid-90s, for that wave that was coming in the 2000s. Wow
0: this it's i'm super curious it seems like you're kind of a a forward thinker in your own right like you're in, you envision what the change will be and you try to adapt to it it sounds like you're doing that right now with montbello and the affordable housing project and working with the high school to make sure they could adapt to the changing population
1: do you see that in yourself i, I do not see that in myself it's <laughs> very interesting as you said that uh, and reflected on it Uh, But I think that's part of my personality in life uh, is I always try to anticipate what can happen in the next six months or what's even happening in my own life and with my children's lives and and, and how you prepare and be ready for it uh, so that it does not have a negative effect on you.
0: Yeah, we could use so much more of that in this country. We're so reactive, I often feel.
1: I I, I believe uh, in everything I do is I try to encourage my children, my grandchildren to start thinking more and, and preparing themselves so that they are guiding the road and not having to be reactive uh, to it. So it's, it's very much like if you're coming to a light and you know you're driving too fast and you anticipate a yellow light, slow down. Why are you gonna speed up right. and run the risk of getting to a red light and having to make a quick stop, which can cause a lot of other problems. So slowing down as you approach that light gives uh, you better prepared for the options that come in. If it's not yellow yet, you're gonna drive right on through. If it turns yellow, you're stopping, you're reducing the risk of getting a stick, a ticket or an accident. Yeah, that preventative helps everybody around you. It really does. And so being cautious sometimes is, uh, is better than rushing through it. Although folks will say that uh, I, uh, I'm one of those people that think really fast. And so when I try to write, uh, I will skip words in my writings. Mm. And but when I reread it, I will see the words still there. So, oh, even when you edit it, even when I edited it so <laughs> it, it took me a long time to develop the knack of being able to edit my own work, huh uh because I would still see the word there because in my mind, it was there, and I knew what my thought process was when I wrote it down and, and so it would
0: still be there you're not you're not seeing the words you're just you're interpreting your thought process on the page that is correct that's so interesting. So take us back. Where, uh, where are the humble beginnings of
1: Christopher Martinez? Very interesting. Uh, I grew up in uh, Five Points neighborhood as okay. a young kid. Uh, so Denver your whole life. Denver's my home my whole life. My mom, there were eight of us children, and my mom was a single parent. And uh, we, I can remember different homes, or I should say uh, duplexes that we lived in. And in the Five Points area, and when my mom remarried, uh, my stepfather, uh, who's African-American, bought a house in Park Hill. Mm. And uh, he actually was courting my mom for three years and owned that house for three years before we moved. I finished my sixth grade year at Ebert Elementary, and we moved to Park Hill. And it's a whole new world because you talk about humble beginnings. Uh, There were five of us kids at home, and we lived in a four-room duplex. Mm, stacking and, them and there was no privacy <laughs> yeah. in, in a house like that uh, but we didn't know any different so we moved to Park Hill you moved to this house that has a living room a dining room a formal dining room a kitchen a breakfast room three bedrooms upstairs and multiple bedrooms downstairs and a big space to play downstairs in a yard you feel like a uh, multi-millionaire yeah it was it was like our own new castle yeah uh, it really was and so I think that was top me Uh, from early on to strive uh, to be able to provide uh, the best you can for your families, Mm. uh, but also try not to overindulge. And uh, I really believe in exposure to things. So when I was younger, just as an example, I think from my humble background, is I preferred to do driving vacations because I could see a lot more and experience a lot more than taking a plane from destination A to destination B.
0: Yeah, you're almost mindful of the journey you're going on because you can see the environment around you. It is true.
1: And uh, my children that are grown now, they will tell you that when they were younger, uh, the road trips were long for them. (laughs) What's the uh, longest one? Unnecessary. We drove from here down south to, uh, through. I had to go to Kansas City, Memphis, Atlanta, and we ended up in South Carolina, Columbia, for a family reunion. And then we went down to Florida to Disney world. And then we came back across the Gulf coast and back up through Texas and home. Oh man. <laughs> so it was a two and a half week journey <laughs> of driving. It was two but, weeks of driving. Just but there now. were things and I was the only driver because my wife never drove on trips like it, but there were things on that trip that my kids were able to experience that we would never experience if we had either flown straight to South Carolina or straight to, uh, florida or what have you like that and we found some hidden gems in our country that they would never experienced either would you what, what's a highlight from those gems i think we lived in denver and uh, a lot of people talk about racism and, and prejudice but you don't experience it didn't know it uh, i grew up with an african-american f- dad and so i there was one experience that was really cool uh where, I was driving a late model uh, Cadillac it was my dad's and uh, the muffler came off as we're going over the Mississippi River, which happens to be a metal bridge. And uh, so you could hear the clink, 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 clink along the bridge. So, you know, there's sparks underneath the car. Mm-hmm. So I get over the bridge and my stepdad was an auto mechanic and had a shop at five points. So I'm just looking for a garage. I mean, I know how to do this. I'll find a garage, go in and have them figure out what we need to do with the muffler. I walk into this place and it was a step back in time, uh, two African-American gentlemen playing checkers at a table, and it was like I didn't exist. They just didn't didn't even acknowledge me that I was in that garage at all. Uh, And finally I heard a lady from the back corner saying to me, I don't remember exactly what she said, but what did I need? And I explained to her and she said, she's a muffler shop, not a muffler, a radiator shop. And she told me where there was a garage, so I went to the garage, and of course we were the only non-African-American folks there. It was packed, and I explained to them what I needed, and they said it would be quite a while, and I assumed it would be quite a while all day in order to even just get them to look at it. So I took the family, we sat down outside and had lunch and what have you, and it was very interesting. All of a sudden the man came back in, he goes, I could take the muffler off, put it in your trunk, and get you on the way if you would like. Just like that, so I don't know what happened inside there, but we got out of there uh, because they put us in front of everybody else in that place. It was very interesting experience that just did not had experienced before. But on some positive things, Biloxi, Mississippi was beautiful. Yeah, uh, made my kids get up early in the morning to go see the sunset, sunrise. I'm sorry, at the beach. My son still talks about that everywhere we've ever been. We always make sure we look at the sunsets, sunrises uh, to experience some they're different than they are here in Colorado and now that my son's old enough, and has a family of his own, they do the same thing mm, very process oriented yes
0: wow I'm, I am curious about that encounter and the um, if you want to if you're okay, mm-hmm. c- oh, yeah. c- continue to talk about it. What was that conversation like with
1: your kids? uh so it was really interesting because the first you know there are different times in life when you grow up with folks that you're very comfortable with you don't notice it until you're outside your own element and your own surroundings and so i didn't notice it you know it it didn't had no impact on me whatsoever but my uh my children were very young and my wife they're both like Nobody talked to you. Nobody said hi. Nobody said anything inside the waiting area. And I said, yeah, but I did. I acknowledged everybody in the room. I mean, because that's just what I do. Yeah, but nobody responded back. I did not notice that. Mm. And and they had noticed that. You could tell that they were not in their familiar surroundings. And so just like anybody, regardless of where you're at, there's some uncomfort with not being in your own familiarity uh, of a surroundings. But when we got done, and we were on our way, uh, it probably really didn't sink in until we hit Atlanta as to what was really going on. And of course, I was on the phone a lot. We didn't have cell phones, so we had to find phones to call my dad who was in South Carolina because he would advised us what to do each time we stopped or uh, we were having that difficulty. So it was interesting, but I think the biggest thing of it is it taught me and hopefully my family at the same time is to be more aware of your surroundings all the time And realize that you are in somebody else's community; you're not in your community, and so sometimes you need to change your behaviors in order to feel comfortable where you're at. So, would you
0: advocate for people like you know entering different community spaces
1: to have like a sense of adapting? There is some sense of that. It is you need to adapt to it, and and I'll use a a storyline that we use in Montbello we saw a lot of influx of folks coming in from the South American countries and Central America. And a lot of my neighbors complained that they would park their vehicles, their trucks, on their front yards, in their front yards. And and instead of having grass, they were using it as a parking lot. And needless to say, in our community, where we pride ourselves on taking care of our yards, it was like, how do you do that? How, you're changing the norms of our community. You need to follow our norms. And I can remember being at a community meeting and talking about that and saying the norms where they come from, that's perfectly acceptable. And so folks started attaching that perception to the Latinos that were coming from Central America and South America. And I had to remind them that Texas, which is a predominantly Anglo state, when you get into more rural areas, doesn't matter who you are you all park your trucks in your front yard that's their culture it's their culture yeah and and so they understand that and they didn't they when they moved here they just didn't realize that they had moved to a different types of norms and a different culture and zoning laws in denver and so we started several years back doing the educational process you know instead of getting manager neighbors let them know you know, it was before have you could, conversation. Exactly. It was before you could have it was legal to have chickens in your yard. Many of our new immigrants had chickens in their yards. They were illegal. You had to let them know. You couldn't butcher a pig in your yard. You could do that on a farm, but you couldn't do it in the city of Montbello or the city of Denver. And, and you see that. And they're doing what's culturally acceptable and what their norms were where they were from, not realizing they had moved someplace else and it was totally different.
0: Mm. It seems like you come from a pretty culturally diverse family yourself. I do. What's the What's your cultural background?
1: My cultural background is my uh, my grand my mom's side of the family. My grandfather is. We have probably about eight generations here in Colorado, but her grandmother was from Ireland. Oh straight from Ireland. On my birth father's side, the family who I don't know very well, but I do know they were from northern New Mexico. Mm. And so I assume they have a lot of mestizo, probably Indian, Spaniard in them. And growing up, a lot of folks would mistakenly think I was Italian, Jewish, many other different types of cultures. And I think it's just part of some of the characteristics that uh, carried over. Mm.
0: And so has that impacted your passion for working in culturally diverse spaces just having those experiences growing up
1: you know i think my mom raised us to be open and accepting it's one of the interesting things i'm going to bridge into the religion because i'm catholic and when i was a very strong roman catholic growing up as a kid and i always saw the church as, a, as an accepting forgiving institution and so that's the philosophy i use in life and so I believe that always opening up our doors or my doors to our house uh, to our friends, family, and their friends and family and, and treat them just as, just as you would anybody else in your family. Mm. And so that's the way I have tried to raise my children in doing that. And I think that's what's made it a lot easier or I shouldn't say easier, but probably why we're so comfortable in our communities as this change over the years is because we're just more accepting and and wanting to undersee and feel everybody feel more comfortable and within their own homes. And in our block, it's very diverse and uh, it's been absolutely amazing to watch it change over the years of the residents living in our block. But I would say everybody in our block knows who we are. Mm. So you, you try to develop
0: a really strong sense of community where you're at.
1: We do. Uh, We are very, very family oriented, and so I think when you're as family oriented as we are, you become more community oriented. And uh, as I started off earlier today, I truly believe in giving back, giving back to your community. The community has been good to me. It's allowed me to raise my children, and my grandchildren are growing up there. It's been a wonderful place to live, and I believe in giving back.
0: Right now we're in an interesting time period. We're in a really um I I'd say on both sides there's a really strong fear of the other. Yeah. And with that mentality, what what would you say? I mean, racially, politically, um, any identity you want to go with, what what would you say to those people? What would you advocate for in order to bridge that divide? <laughs>
1: One of the hardest things for individuals to do is to put yourself in someone else's shoes. It's really difficult to do. But if we all would just take the time and put ourselves in someone else's shoes and see what's going on, I think we would find ourselves to be a lot more accepting and understanding and sharing. And when you are in that position, it opens up the communication lines. Mm. to a point where you can have real, honest, direct communication and helpful communication. And I say that from a community standpoint. You know, I said I'm generational Coloradan. I am not bilingual. I can understand Spanish just enough because my mom and I used to speak Spanish so my younger brothers and sisters would know what we were saying. (laughs) It's the truth. And my grandmother spoke only Spanish, and I was the interpreter when we were all growing up. But... And the church we live in, work, go to now in Montbello, we go to the same church and we've gone there since we've lived in Montbello. It has changed dramatically from a majority Anglo church, and a Catholic church, to now it's a majority Spanish-speaking church. Mm, That's awesome. And one of the things that I saw a lot of my fellow churchgoers move. When they didn't like it, they moved. They changed churches. They went to churches in Aurora and Denver and or, or stopped going to church. We made a conscientious decision. We were not leaving our church. It was our church. Yeah. And we would adapt, and we would ask the new parishioners to adapt as well to make it our church, and that's what we've been able to do. I think it's common for
0: people to see something a space, a community. You were talking about schools earlier, as their own, and atta- attach their identity to it. And then when it starts to change, be like, "Well, this isn't the community I once was a part of," and that, and you didn't do that. And in all these cases, it, it seems like you're advocating. You've you've had the experience and wanted to do this, where you stay in the community and change with it.
1: Well, change is not easy. And I think change is hard for a lot of people. But if you really think about life, life is all about change. You it know, never stops changing. It, it does not. From the time when uh, my wife and I got married. was just two young folks. Our parents helped us get our first house and furnish it. We end up with two children. We raise our children. Different, s- some of my siblings other family members other friends lived with us throughout the years we lived in our house there's change every single time a new person is in your world in your in your environment in your home there's a change and it's how do you handle that change and so it's the same thing with the next door neighbor every time you get a new neighbor there's change you know and and how do you adapt to that change it's really one of those things that you could either decide that you're either going to try to adapt and work with those that are changing around you or you're going to run from change and try to find a different place that when you move, you're creating a change there. Yeah. But you, you instigated that change. And so right. people are a lot more comfortable when they make that change They're versus when the change is put on them.
0: Yeah. I think that control piece plays into it too.
1: But you, you know, in my life, I have a lot more control if I could, if I'm in my environment where I'm comfortable with, uh, even though everything on the outside of my little circle is changing, I still have a lot more control than if I moved to a completely new neighborhood. That's an interesting perspective. What would have
0: been the fruits of making those decisions for you? Happiness. Happiness. And longevity.
1: You know, there is, there's some stories that I tell that are hilarious. Children that have grew up with my kids We were mom and dad to all of them didn't matter what ethnicity they were we were mom and dad we have grandchildren now and we're nanny and poppy now to all of their friends it doesn't matter who they are poppy that's a great we're stability in our community and this is sometimes things like this happen because it's part of every family structure we've had some young men that went to high school with my son they got in trouble get arrested and it's interesting enough that the number that they remember to call before cell phones is our home number. Wow, they still uh, have so that memorized. The, yes, they, they memorized it from all those years and they still call it. So whether they move out of state or they want to reconnect, they call that number and we still answer it. And uh, we reconnect them back with the family. Uh, who So there's that consistency, I think, in their lives that we've been able to provide, the stability for them, and to hold on to something that's really extremely important to them with their past, I think it's really important that there's a, those anchors mm. for community and family and members today because so much of that is gone. Yeah. And and so if we're playing a little part and being able to do that in our community, uh, I believe it's important enough that we will hopefully do that for the rest of my life. Wow
0: you really are playing a really unique role model, especially for my generation. Being a millennial growing up in the information age, I think it's often preached to me that to travel and to move and to find new spaces and to experience the world and everything's becoming so connected that you're almost this... You're, you're almost providing the stability that I think my
1: generation is losing track of right now. It is unfortunate because I've been fortunate enough to travel the world. I've been fortunate enough to see a lot of things and, and a lot of it was the way I chose to do it and how I did it. And, and I certainly encourage my children to do the same thing. But I've also tried to teach them that there's nothing more important in life than being able to have a place to call home and be able to go back to it. It'll never be the same. It'll never be the same. I go down to Five Points, The one of the duplexes that I grew up in is still standing. With all the development going on there, it is still standing there. But I still do drive through Five Points quite frequently, remembering some of the spots that I used to go to as a young kid and remembering knowing that a lot of them aren't even there anymore. A lot of my friends' homes aren't there anymore but we don't have any anchors there anymore. It's gone. And so it's that if our home is providing that, it's important. I don't know what it's like when you're growing up. I knew that my grandmother, when she moved a couple of times that I recall when I was a kid, but going to grandma's was huge. For me too. It was huge. And that was an anchor. I didn't know it at the time, but that was an anchor to our family history, to our family culture. And, that's what I believe in, and be able to provide today the same type of thing for those who we may have had some impact on their lives. Yeah, you're honestly reminding me a lot of what
0: my dad preaches. My dad is always saying children need consistency and they need structure, and so he was he never wanted to move when we were growing up. He wanted to stay in the same house and provide that. And it seems like on a more macro level, you're providing that for your community, like beyond your children, beyond your family.
1: Yeah, it is interesting because you say that I remember my son uh, was probably fourth, fifth grade and we had really thought about moving. One time we really thought about moving uh, to Green Valley Ranch, buying a bigger house and uh, he was spoiled. We had a half of a basketball court in our backyard. Ooh, all right, killed for that. And, and, uh, and you know, let's say it was the highlight of the neighborhood and his friends. And he was like, he cried, we can't move. This is this is what I have, this is everything, this is what I'm all about. And, you know, we we sat back and looked at that and said that there'll be many more opportunities for us, for my wife and I to do what we want to do. But we should not, if we could possibly not have to do it at that time, uproot him from what he found was his main structure in life. Uh, So we didn't. And it's a good thing he did that because we're still there. And my grandkids don't have that same half basketball court because we did build a deck and, uh, but they still have a Poppy, basketball, yeah, the basketball they still club. have a hoop back there <laughs> they had it there for about four or five years ago we finally built a, a deck over half of it but uh for all those years we kept it for them and the boys would always come over and that's what they always did went in the backyard and and uh, sh- uh, shot hoops and it's an interesting thing because in a community I used to always tell the high schools and, 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 and millennials and the language today is so different than it was when my kids were growing up or when I was growing up and so the use of profanity is just a lot easier. Yeah, I to, cuss to, on this to, podcast to, to all the time. And, uh, and, 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 and I understand that and I, and I respect that. But I also have always tried to teach kids that you have to have respect for your surroundings or where you're at right now. They don't have to have respect for you. You need to earn that. And so... When I had that basketball car in the backyard, we had boys, all different ethnicities, play basketball, and I sit in the living room when I watch TV, and I had a rule. You will not curse, you will not use the N-word, and you will play, and you're gonna have fights and arguments and stuff, and if I come out and say stop, you stop. Yeah. And they respected that, and I laughed because they would walk out of the backyard, walk down the driveway, get to the street, and their potty mouse would just start going <laughs> like crazy. Uh, at the time, it was funny. But as I look back on it, I, it's like true respect. I, I demanded the respect. I give them respect. And we give it to each other. When I would walk into an unfamiliar high school, and when I see young folks, I always address them, uh, gentlemen. Ladies, how are you? What's going on? It it didn't matter. I didn't ignore, act like they didn't exist in that hallway. I would uh, address them. And mutually, they would address me back. And so the next time when I returned, they would acknowledge me before having to acknowledge them. Mm. And, And then that's truly just giving respect and getting respect back. And I think that's just one of the things that we're losing a lot of, and it's folks from my generation, don't understand the language change. Yeah. And so some of them find it much more difficult to deal with younger folks. Where I've learned is that if I've never used those words and I'm having deep conversations, it's amazing how easy it is if you're in a good conversation or you're bringing a good mentor or you're trying to help someone, that the loss of that behavior changes as well. What do you mean? that they stop using as much as their explicit language is because they no longer need to do that.
0: Cause you're engaging them in a deeper way. That is correct. Interesting. It is interesting cause you're not necessarily advocating for like age as a sign of respect. I almost hear you're talking about who, whose space are you in? In the case with your kids, you're at your house your basketball court, you set the rules. When you walk into a high school, you understand you're not in control. So then you're the one that is earning the kids' respect, which I don't think a lot of people would see it that way. They would see, I'm older, I have experience, you owe me respect.
1: You're, you're correct. And I think it goes a couple of ways. I do teach my children that they always have to respect for their elders. and Right. Uh, and and we, do, we go around on that. And there are times that I still have to remind them of that. But I think it's when you travel, and if you travel to a foreign country where English is not the first language, you cannot expect everybody to be speaking English. Mm. You just cannot. So you need to adapt. You need to figure out to use your hands or use words that you think are very common that could possibly help you navigate through that system is what works. It's just that we forget to do that when we move from one neighborhood to another neighborhood, when we go from one city to another city within our own country, that there could be differences. Behaviors in Colorado are a lot different than they are in New York or Manhattan. A I'm lot from different. Ohio, and yeah, it's
0: a it, lot different. Yeah,
1: than the South. but and, and we tend to think that all Americans tend to behave and do the same things, and it's not true at all. We, we have to respect where we're going, understand it, and it's not to say to lose your identity. You always maintain your identity, but as you do, I think what we lose a lot more of is respect for what the other side's coming from.
0: Yeah. Me and my roommate have these conversations a lot. She's from Southern California. I'm from the Midwest and she, she has a much softer approach to the world. And when I talk about being from Ohio and my friends were just visiting, we do this thing where we talk more trash to each other and we're saying things that are harder edge man or woman. We're like, and we're quick and we're quick with And it's almost a way of like, Oh, now I know you're speaking my language and now we're going to connect after mm-hmm. that. And so she was like, yeah, I have to remember sometimes Danny, you're from Ohio and you can take the kid out of Ohio, but you can't take the Ohio out of the kid. And we're in the same country, but we're, Interacting with our environment so differently so different.
1: I uh, I'm a Denver kid. I went to East High School Angel for life as I always tell everybody proud of it very diverse high school As a matter of fact when I was there too, the Latino population was probably the smallest population in the high school it was mainly Anglo and African Americans and and I crossed the lines from both sides I was one of those individuals who was able to go from the south side of the school with the Anglo kids to the north side with the African American It was kids. divided
0: in the high oh, school yes. on oh, yes. space? Oh, yeah. It, it,
1: it was. I it, 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 never heard there, of that. There in were a high few school. kids who navigated back and forth. I was fortunate to be one of them. But I think it just happens. It just, you know, you just, anytime you, a school of over 2,000 individuals, it happens. It's that way today. Uh, there's still a lot of integration in there but there's still segregation happens within the student body. But what was interesting, growing up in an African American community, never seeing myself any different. And obviously my skin color is different, but I just mm-hmm. don't see myself, didn't see myself differently. I went to school in Boulder and in a dorm. See, and, you, and see the dorm is now ninety percent Anglo. There's probably ten Latinos and probably four African Americans in the dorm. Well, I navigate to the African Americans because that's that, how you identify. That's what I did in high school. I I didn't see myself as a color. And so when I'm trying to talk to these guys, they're liking at me like, "Who is this white boy trying to talk to me?" <laughs> I, I mean, they didn't even acknowledge that I was Latino. And it took a while for me to break that barrier down with them. Uh, and but it took an initiative on my end. Later in life, I realized they came from a whole different environment where a white guy it would have been me walks up and say, what's up man, what's going on? They wouldn't have no idea. They're looking at me like, who are you? Right. It's a new experience. Absolutely. And so it's breaking down those barriers and how do it. And I think that's one of the things I like. To, I pride myself in doing is how do you break down those barriers so that there's comfort for everybody? Mm. Yeah.
0: Which I think for a lot of people would be really uncomfortable. And it sounds like you were lucky enough to have been exposed so early I was that walking into that environment isn't like, like you're not going, I'm trying to break down a barrier. Like this barrier is broken. Yes. I've had this barrier broken within me since I was a kid and I can just approach it. So for people who aren't comfortable walking into those environments, what would you say?
1: You know, I think as part of it is preparing yourself in advance. As I said earlier, is our first interactions, and we do this in the malls, we do this at the grocery stores, we do it everywhere. We just tend to ignore people that we don't identify ourselves with mm-hmm. as if they don't exist. And unless your cart hits a cart, then you say, excuse me, but then you just immediately move on. And I think you you do that. I've been fortunate and blessed with what my wife calls an inviting face look. Uh, There's
0: definitely a difference between somebody who has that and who doesn't.
1: And I don't know it. I don't see it. But we could go places and she will say, why do people talk to you? Why do people acknowledge you? Why do people say, hey, you know, whatever, especially if I'm in environments and we still go to a lot of environments where majority are African-Americans and she said, you're so relaxed and everybody treats you and they don't even know who you are, mm. as you belong there. And I, And again, I go back to it is, I use the attitude that I do belong because I don't know any better, but I also am respectful of my surroundings and treat people with respect. I don't walk in thinking I'm better than everybody else here. I walk in that I belong there and I acknowledge you when I come in. Uh, it's like coming near the door today. I expected you to answer the door. <laughs> <laughs> and I get this nice young man to answer the door. Hey, how are you doing? I knew I was in the right place. I didn't think I was in the wrong spot. I think a lot of folks would say, am I in the right place? I, was, I actually had that thought. I was curious if you would do that. Nope. I just walked right in. Did I, I just walked in, made myself comfortable because I knew I was at the right place. There, there, was, there was no fear. I don't let the fear factor engage in me and uh, stop me. There are times, though, I always tell people you have to use your gut. My gut was, I was comfortable, I was good. If your gut's telling you you're uncomfortable, get out of it.
0: Mm. And so, if you're a white person entering a black space or a black person entering a white space, would I, or, you know, any myriad of identities, I hear you saying, You're not advocating for 1993 colorblind attitude, but you're saying this is this is where I'm at. This is what's happening. This is who's around me. I respect that there's differences, but that doesn't just because there's differences doesn't mean that I can't belong here. That's correct. And even if there are people in these spaces that maybe look at you judgmentally, because there are in every space that maybe say you don't belong, you're not taking those on because you know in your inside that you belong yourself.
1: Correct. You know, I, I tell this is kind of true. I, I grew up in northeast Denver, Montbello. What I would envision, uh, folks from southwest Denver or Highlands Ranch to come into Montbello the first time, seeing all the diversity, is seeing some discomfort. It's no different than my discomfort when I drive over to their communities. Mm. But if you don't go there and act like you belong and that it is part of you, uh, you let the discomfort get the best of you. The discomfort wins. Exactly. And, and and I don't believe we should ever allow that to happen. I, I believe we should respect where we're at, first and foremost, but also feel like you do belong there and it's okay. Mm. That's so
0: interesting. And I think for myself as a white male, entering diverse spaces, I'm not, I'm, I really am going to take this conversation to heart and like feel my discomfort not all the time, it depends on where I'm at and if it's new people or not, but, and recognize it's just discomfort.
1: I use this st- a story because it's folks say like, I have a very outgoing personality that I am very, uh, I can make myself comfortable in any environment and it's, I'm a very shy person, to be truthfully honest.
0: I would uh, not have guessed that. <laughs> and and most folks do not this know
1: conversation. that it's very very difficult for me to walk into a room of strangers extremely difficult and when i was younger i would be a wallflower immediately and would not move and i have to force myself every time to break away from that wall to participate in the environment where i'm at and act like you belong I'm in the construction world. I'm an executive director for a trade organization for in the construction industry. And so the executives of the construction industry are majority Anglo, hands down. And so when I go to large, large events, the room is probably 80% Anglo men. Not my environment. Mm-hmm. Not something I'm very used to being around. But I refuse to succumb to that. So when I go in there, I am Chris. I am who I am. And I'm going to do everything I can to introduce myself to you and hopefully get you to acknowledge me and understand who I am.
0: And are you received well in those areas? Do you have
1: barriers? Do you have challenges? You know, the interesting thing is those folks probably feel the same way about me when I walk in a room. Who is this guy? As I'm saying, what am I doing in this room? Yeah, you think it's a—it's a preconceived notion that I think there's a prejudice already built in there. Yeah, and I don't think it's always the case. I think the prejudice does exist. Don't get me wrong, and biases do exist, and I think they exist in all of us. It's a matter do we let do we live by those prejudices and biases? And I think the good and I'd like to try to believe in the good nature of folks that we do not live by those biases and we get influenced by them it's easy to do that when you're not face to face with an individual so when i walk in that room and if they have a bias against latinos or short latino men i could break down that barrier by walking up and saying hey what's going on and talk about the industry talk about construction whatever the deal is introduce myself Uh, i think we could break down those barriers and i probably made them a lot more comfortable because they're probably uncomfortable that i'm in there
0: yeah yeah And you're just like, this is here. I'm not even, I'm not phased. I may be phased, but I'm not going to let being phased inhibit
1: this. I can't do my job if I can't
0: survive in an environment like that. I think it's interesting that you said we all have biases and I see this in myself And I wonder if other people feel this way too. But I think there's a reluctance. I think part of the reason this conversation and these interactions and these barriers are so strong and have such a strong grip on us is because it's a refusal to even acknowledge that there's bias. Because as soon as we have bias, all of a sudden we might be racist or we might be... And, and so, you know, racism, bias, that's for the others, especially in liberal communities. That's only Republicans. Those are the racists. There's no bias within liberal circles. It's interesting because you're saying, no, we do have bias, but don't let the bias win.
1: I can't imagine anybody not having a bias. I, I just... I... I, I, I <laughs> You always are going to have a bias to your environment of what you grew up in. I find this interesting for military families, children who had parents in the military who moved from base to base, from across the country to different countries. Their acceptance of others is different than those of us who chose to stay in one community for a majority of our lives. Hmm. And, and at least that's what I have found, that I have found those who were military students, biases were broken down, but they didn't have that feeling of what a real home was like, where, where their roots were really from, because they were all over the place, and they got exposed to a lot of wonderful things. I got exposed to a different type of culture growing up and that's the culture I remain to. I mean, I have, I eat a lot of uh, what folks would call, I eat a lot of Mexican dishes, Spanish foods because my mom cooked them, but my mom also cooked a lot of soul food, food from the South Uh, that were my dad's things. And and I still make a lot of those things today myself. You got the Uh, best combination. It is, it is, it is, it is. is. And so there's the biases, You, you know, I guess if you go to set a buffet out and all different types of food and you send uh, foods from different parts of the state, uh, the uh, United States, and you send 50 people, 50 people in there, the people are going to migrate to the foods that they have most knowledge to, familiarity to. Mm. It's not, you know, there, there's a bias not to eat something that they don't know. So when people say, I don't have any biases, I just have a hard time believing you just haven't discovered what they are because you just have not acknowledged them yet.
0: Yeah. I mean, you pointed a very prevalent example in a very simple, superficial topic, which is food. Yes. That we're always looking to feel comfortable and we're always looking for, and something you said earlier was like, I'm not going to acknowledge somebody I don't identify with. In like a very subconscious way, not like a, this person doesn't look like me or isn't like me, so I'm not going to, and maybe this is going too all over the place, but I was reading a book today that the question was like, they were asking, she was like, I'm curious about who gets to be human and who gets to be grieved for as human life. Just talking about political systems and who... Like when, you know, other races or in the Middle East, they are talking about basically because Americans in the Middle East, like they're, they, we don't value them as human because, you know, different races, et cetera, et cetera. And bringing it back to what you said, it's almost like it could just be a very passive subconscious thing where it's like, we're only, we're looking to be comfortable with someone. We're looking to identify with somebody. So it's not that we're necessarily dehumanizing them, but our brains just... Interact in that way.
1: It does, it, and I've seen this, this. This happened at your event, and and, and I, 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 I hope I, I know. I think I know. What you're I, and I said this that day. It was a very diverse group. I was really pleased uh, being part of the diverse group, but I, I shared this. There was an African American lady there, and uh, there were a couple, but she was an older lady, and I identified with her immediately. We looked nothing alike. We're probably closer in age. But I went over sat with her to talk with her, and, and I knew we would have something in common before I sat with other people in the room. And it's just the way we do it. It's, it's our own natural behaviors. Our, we have those biases that where we're going to go first to where we're comfortable. Yeah. And as I said, I'm a shy person, so I was having to step out of my shell that morning and try to make myself comfortable. And, and you may not even notice it, Daniel, but... It took me a long time before I even sat down because I just didn't want to sit. i get real uncomfortable sometimes sitting at a table full of strangers. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) And I just had to tell myself I have to do this. And then once I do it and once I'm comfortable, I'm always willing to share. You know, at that event, do you remember
0: Janet, the storyteller? Yes. She was somebody that immediately I felt connected to. She, like, telling her story... And since then, we've just had a few Facebook interactions and she's been so, I just like reading her Facebook and talking to her about, um, you know, she's an African American woman and she talks so much about healing and dialogue and, and cross. And it was, that was so, that was such a rich interaction. She probably doesn't even know how much that impacted me. But what
1: broke down that barrier was being able to hear her first. Yeah. You wouldn't have had that same interaction had you not able to hear her and hear something which she had to say first.
0: Yeah. And to li- so to listen, mm-hmm. to find time to listen.
1: And, and I, I really, in our communities today, and, I, and I, a lot of us folks talk about that, but there's nothing, there's no greater talent than to being able to listen. Mm. There is no greater talent than being able to listen because we're moving so fast sometimes it, it seems like light years and we're not listening to what's really going on around us yeah and when you don't listen you can't interpret you can't understand and it's probably not genuine yeah I think
0: that is often a big challenge for people I think mean, it's really it can be hard I think it can be because you seem to be a person who operates at a slower pace. Like, or chooses
1: to be more mindful of the moments that are surrounding you. It, it's funny you say that because I think most people that know me say that I move hundred miles an hour, <laughs> 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 that I don't slow down. I, I, uh, and I think they use the, and the energy piece of me is why they say that as is, is I'm very energetic and I don't and take a lot of time to sit back, relax and accomplish a lot. I'm I, sure. I, I, so I'm just constantly moving. It's the same thing when I, when I talk, I have to t- remind myself to slow down because I f- speed through conversations. And then I find myself when I do that, I'm not listening. Oh, yeah. You know, so it is really, uh, I'm one of those individuals, it takes a lot for me to slow down to listen. And so if you're at a slower pace, you're probably a better listener. Uh, I am not the best listener, but I do think things through. As you guessed on me earlier, I always try to anticipate what I think is going on. I think my children hated that when they were growing up. I know my grandchildren hate it today (laughs) because when I'm dealing with the situation, I try to think of what the possible outcomes could possibly be. And I'm always telling them, there were eight of us growing up, you cannot do something that I have not already seen happen already. <laughs> just not, there's just not a whole lot of room left. I mean, you can be creative, but not a lot. And, and uh, it's anticipating and knowing. But I find myself sometimes really difficult, with difficulty, to listen to them, to really to listen cuts. to what they're saying.
0: That's so curious. I would have never guessed that. That's you seem so mindful and I've only seen you in a couple spaces
1: now, but it's, it's important, Mm -hmm. but you, you get in your realm, uh, even at work or training a new person. I sometimes forget I am training this person. They don't know this stuff already. Right. And so I need to be mindful of that and slow down and ask them to repeat what they're really asking instead of anticipating what I think they want to know.
0: Mm. Instead of being in your head, being present with what's happening around you. Exactly.
1: Here. And it's a very difficult task. I don't think we do that very well at all. And I say we as a generally, as the population, as individuals today, we don't do that very well. I
0: agree. I think, honestly, this is your my eighth or seventh interview on this podcast, and I've noticed myself having this while I'm in this space of engaging in conversation in such a more meaningful way, because this is the task at hand, which is to engage in a meaningful way. And it's kind of opened my world up to be like, wow, I don't do this as often as I could. Like I have this ability, but I'm not really giving that to the people around
1: me. We're creatures of habit. So, you know, I tell stories. I love stories. You could tell this already. But I think one of the things you'll notice of individuals do is greetings. Hey, how are you today? Fine. How are you? That is the standard pat answer immediately. (laughs) Yeah. And if you, if I had asked you, how are you today? And you said, fine, how are you? And I, and I respond back, fine. We just move on. But if you said, that's really a crappy day. How are you? And I would say, fine. And I just go, I never heard what you said right yeah and or did i you acknowledge it on. yeah because we get so used to what we're doing it's, it's habit that we just start acknowledging each other in the same way and not stop and listen and and i think that's the same way with uh, uh adults it's the same way with uh been married as long as we've been married we tend to take each other for granted sometimes and forget to listen yeah and so when you have a disagreement then I always think back what caused it i can 't remember and you know how the whole thing goes you 're arguing over something you can 't remember what you 're arguing about, which is so true uh, it 's because we weren 't listening yeah it was some it was already another agenda out there, and what was that agenda that you 're trying to make a, a, make your point on that you forgot what you 're even arguing about at that particular time, so I tried to be more mindful. Um, also one of those individuals that try to it 's very difficult for me is not to have immediate answer
0: because mm-hmm.
1: it's so easy to do it. Right. Uh, and I know I, especially in work and other places, I have a lot of knowledge. Sometimes I answer and I know it wasn't even, that's not even the question they asked. So listening is so important.
0: Yeah. How long have you been
1: married to your wife? It'll be 43 years in April. Wow. How'd you do it? You get through forty (laughs) three years. You find the right person the first time. Uh, uh, It was I don't know. I I I don't know what the magic is. Quite honestly, we are different in many ways, but we find things that we both uh, enjoy doing. Uh, But the day I met Terry, I knew we were going to get married. Damn, that's crazy. Uh, and so I believe. Did she know that too? Oh, she hated that thought. She hated the thought. <laughs> it's. A, I know this is a funny story, but reality, we did not have our single date by ourselves until after we were engaged. <laughs> what? That's not possible. I know, that's not possible, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'll, t- I'll quickly tell you. <laughs> we met through some mutual friends. I knew we were getting married. I tried to get her number. My friend wouldn't give it to me. She calls me a couple weeks later, and so we decided we'll go out, but we always went out with our friends. We never went to a movie by ourselves. We never went to dinner by ourselves. We went out with our friends. And I didn't drive, so she drove, picked me up, dropped me off. It was like that, and I was serious. I knew I was serious. I knew I wanted to get married. I I was still young, but I knew she was gonna be the one. It scared her. Uh, We did that for about two months, and I'm not not lying, two months. Uh, She said, we're done. I said, okay. But we're still getting married. And and we had a whole new network of friends and we kept going out with the same friends, but her and I were not together. And so. For how long? So we met January 12th. Yeah. What year? We broke up 1975. Uh, We broke up in uh, March, the end of March. Wait, you said January? January 12th, we met. We started going out in February, broke up the end of March. Uh, we got engaged August 7th. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, it's funny. She calls me up one day at work. I said, what do you do? I said, nothing. Come over. She came over. I said, asked her to marry me. She said yes. And- so did you get back?
0: You didn't get back together until you uh, proposed to her? That's correct.
1: Why did she say Yes. Because she knew she loved me like I loved her. <laughs> 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 oh, man. What a story. It was one of those absence makes the heart fonder. We had the same friends. Her girlfriends used to come over to my place three nights a week. We'd play cards and games. They'd go home and call her. We were at Chris's. And she hated that. <laughs> yeah. I think those, you know, It was just those types of things. But we've been fortunate. We've been very fortunate. Wow.
0: Do you... <laughs> do you find yourself really having to, you know, you've given a lot of lessons on this so far. Do you find yourself really having to enact those lessons of like listening and being present with your wife and to like maintain and help that relationship grow?
1: You know, one of the things that we did, this is funny and I know this is, I think it's just philosophy of life, uh, different than I think, uh, as generations that came after us, we would have disagreements and disputes but we never carried an argument out in front of the kids. Interesting. If we had to go to the other room, whatever, we did. If we got mad and just shut up, we just did. Didn't mean we didn't have those disagreements. We had them. Believe me, we had a lot of them. But we just chose to handle them differently. And we would never handle them in the public. And so there was, and I think that came from, as over the years, it just builds more mutual respect for each other. That's what I was just about to say, yeah that you have that respect i tell our kids and family knows this and everything we could be as mad as can be at each other if we're going out to dinner with friends they will not know we are mad at each other mm. they could not tell so there's never
0: that pub. there's never that risk i'm sure both of you have that trust then that there's never a risk of like public shame or no. no
1: there was never any of that and i think that helps keep that relationship longer Because when you do, and and I'm glad you call the public shame, when you do that, there's no going back. There is no going back. Yeah, because other people have just made their
0: own impression. Exactly. And you can't control what they think.
1: And and nor do they have all the facts. Right. And so they made it off of uh, incomplete information.
0: So does that go the same for, because it's interesting. I'm somebody who likes to process my problems with like different people, you know, and does that mean you also keep your problems within
1: your marriage or do you just have like a select confidant or, you know, I think I kept most of them to myself. Hmm. I'm a very, uh, well, when you're a shy person, you're usually a very private person. Yeah. And those are my natural tendencies. But, uh, there are some environments and some things that you share more, uh, work environments you share work details and stuff with other people uh, but when it came to personal life issues I don't think I truly felt that there was ever a confidant that you ever really did that with I mean for my parents I was their confidant on both sides I knew that but uh, you didn't have a confidant I no I, I think I had friends and stuff that I could do but my wife was my confidant and so everything stayed in
0: house mm-hmm wow that's really powerful
1: so it's it's you just got to work at it nothing's easy Uh, the greatest things in life are things that you have to work the hardest for Mm. and and i say that truly we worked hard at our marriage when we were young we're still working at it now 43 years but wouldn't give it any of it up wouldn't trade it in for anything Wow.
0: That's really beautiful. I'm sure Kamga, my producer is got a lot turning. You're freshly married. Aren't you Kamga? Um, and I'm single myself, so it's, it's nice to, it's just reassuring to hear stories like that. You know, they happen. Yeah.
1: They just work. We have good friends. They've been married 45, 46 years. Wow, and they now they're different than us. They're probably a little bit more public. We probably are their confidants, and hearing all of their stories and stuff. And I'm sure my wife has confidants as well. She's not as private and as shy as I am. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think I would be. Yeah, and it's it's good that you say that because there's a bunch of different types of marriages and relationships. So you know, multiple people who have been married over 40 years now. I do. Wow. Are you all friends? Can you only be friends with people at that point? Oh, no.
1: Is there like a club? That no, once we, you know, get over 40, we have friends who have been divorced <laughs> and second marriages and friends that are single. Friends that are going through divorce. Uh, no, we have a lot of friends that have been married a number of years, mm. uh, but it's not like a club. We we party with I'm a party person. Party, <laughs> Chris over here. <laughs> we party with folks of uh, all different groups.
0: <laughs> what's uh, what's Chris like at a party? Crazy.
1: <laughs> um, you dance on tables. <laughs> nah, I probably have done that. I'm sure I have. A uh, memory won't do me. Wrong. I I love to party. <laughs> I, I re, I'm a uh, Once if I'm at a party and it's people that I know. You're letting loose. I am a social butterfly. <laughs> I am a social butterfly, uh, and if there's dancing, you get down. That that is it. I, I that's all I need because I I will I will dance with every woman who wants to dance.
0: <laughs> that's the secret to keeping a marriage going, right there. That, that, that is, that, you know, understanding.
1: that I know who I'm going home with. So <laughs> <laughs> what music? What are you dancing to? Everything. Everything. Uh, Probably the hardest music for me is hard rock. Yeah. Uh, But I grew up with uh, Motown, R&B, old school. Love it. I love new music. New Uh, music, too. Yeah. I'm a music... I love music. Don't ask me for titles and don't ask me for artists. Mm. Because I don't pay attention to those things. And it's actually, I found out why about four years ago, three years ago. I didn't know why I wasn't paying attention to that because I didn't understand. I think I've had, for the majority of my life, uh, hearing issues. Oh. And I didn't know it. Interesting. And about three years ago, I went in and got my hearing tested in two different places. And they both said, how do you survive? Because you have no hearing. What? And uh, they said you either are a master of your subject, because I was a salesman. I did marketing for the Federal Reserve Bank marketing and sales, they said, you have to know your subject matters and you have to be a great lip reader and you have to be able to anticipate what they're going to say. And those are, you see, and you're good at that. Those are things. Yes, exactly. And you didn't even know yet. Those were your skills. And so that's why I learned later in life that listening is so important (laughs) (laughs) because it it all came back. I, I very young. I know that I used to make up words to songs because that's what I thought I was hearing. Oh. and I've always liked the beat and the rhythm of music more than the lyrics and and now it all came back as to why
0: yeah I mean that makes sense if you can't hear the words you can still
1: absorb right. in your body yes. the beat So some of the craziest songs have the best tone and the best beat. And I I, I love that song, but it's not a good song. (laughs) I had no idea. No, no, you're right.
0: (laughs) Oh, man.
1: Um, So what's next for you? You know, at some point in life, I assume I'll retire. I've been fortunate to to have grandchildren. Watching them grow up, I see my grandchildren almost every day. And those are the satisfying pieces of life. I think the what's next for me is I truly believe that I will continue to give back to my community mm. and and continue as long as I'm able to fight for my community uh, and for those who don't have voices and helping them find their voices. And, and sometimes this leaves you in unpopular places, but that's the reality of it. It's better to be there and to fight for the people and fight for especially children to have a better opportunity in the long run than it is for the short game. Those are inspiring words, Chris. Where can they find you? Where can they connect with you? They can connect with me. Just You c- c- call anybody at Montbello. They probably know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> call up Montbello. Yes. Uh, but I, I'm with Montbello Organizing Committee. I am president of that. I am also president of the Colorado Latino Leadership Research Association. And I do work with refugee children with growing Colorado kids. And I run a nonprofit, which is Hispanic Contractors of Colorado. But they could reach me through my email. It's very easy. It's Chris Martinez. His zip code is 80239. So it's Chris Martinez, 80239, at yahoo.com. So I, I truly kept my mom battle roots and choosing the zip code for part of my email address. Nice. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for having me. The, uh, let me talk about myself for so much and it's just life and I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks. Thank you for taking the time to listen to
0: the soul stories podcast. Having these conversations is super important to me as a person and the backbone behind why we do everything at Soul Stories. I would be extremely grateful if you were to leave a review at iTunes and share this episode with someone you care about. It helps us build the movement. Until next time, this is Danny signing off.